Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we're turning our attention to Barbara Stanwyck with Kate Liberati. Kate is a healthcare worker, theater actor, and film lover from upstate New York. I recently sat down with Kate to discuss The Lady Eve and Ball of Fire. Here's our conversation. So welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss Barbara Stanwyck and her screwball comedies, The Lady Eve and Ball of Fire. My God, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we begin and before we sort of get into Stanwyck's career, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, when did you first discover Barbara Stanwyck and what made you fall in love with her? Yeah, so I am just a very big fan of older movies in general. I attribute that to being raised partially by my grandparents. Um, Whenever I was at their house, it was always TCM or Jeopardy. So I was exposed to a lot of movies at a very young age. And the first Barbara Stanwyck movie I remember seeing was actually probably her most famous, Double Indemnity, um, with our favorite Fred McMurray. But that was uh, quite a few years ago, and I was more of a Betty Davis fan until I started researching more into Barbara Stanwyck's filmography um, when COVID hit, because everybody was home, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing to do except watch more movies. So I started diving deeper into different Hollywood actresses that I had been a fan of, but never really looked more into and Barbara Stanwyck's filmography stood out to me as the most interesting and that led me down the rabbit hole and (laughs) brought me to where I am now with a baby face poster and her biography and being a big fan. I love that. I'm the same way. Like My mom is also a TCM fanatic. I think She's probably watched more classical Hollywood movies than me. And it's just like you kind of you're familiar with these people, but they don't something like clicks later on in your life. And it's just it's really cool. And I mean, Barbara Stanwyck's an amazing actress to be a fan of. You know, I'm a huge fan of Carol, but I think if I have to be objective, I think Barbara Stanwyck is probably like the most talented actress from that era. It's just something so magical about her performances. She's extremely dynamic and charismatic, which I think attributes a lot to her success on screen. But I think it's also, she has some theater background also. I mean, Mm -hmm. she started out um, very early on as Broadway. And I think that helped her a lot on screen too. And and that's the case for a lot of older Hollywood performers. They Mm -hmm. got their start on Broadway and then moved into movies. But there's just something about Barbara Stanwyck specifically, it's just dynamic to watch her on screen, whether it's a drama or a screwball comedy, you can't take your eyes off of her. Absolutely. And I mean, we're, we'll get into the films in a second, but I think 
there's a scene in Ball of Fire when she first comes to the professor's house and she's wearing that like sequin dress and she's literally like shining. She's like like the focal point of the scene. It's like you can't take your eyes off her. And I think that's like a metaphor for all of her performances. Yeah. It's something about her eyes too. Like in that scene specifically, like her outfit is shiny, but her eyes are shining. Mm-hmm. And she just uses her face really well. Yeah. And that sounds like a very weird thing to say, but it's something that I've noticed throughout all of her movies. Her face is just absolutely dynamic to mm-hmm. watch. Well, there's just like a certain subtlety in the way she's able to express herself. And I mean, you have a theater background. Do you sort of see elements of like theatrical performance in the way she acts in films? I do a little bit. And my theater experience is very limited compared to what she did. Um, The community theater is a whole different ballgame than Broadway or off-Broadway. But I do notice little things that I have either either found myself doing or found my, you know, castmates doing. Just little nuances. And I think the thing that I notice the most with her, it's like the split second changes. Mm -hmm. Like, because she can go from... I'm trying to think of a good example. And I think one is in The Lady Eve, which we're going to talk more about that after. Mm -hmm. But there's this one scene in particular where her emotions just flip-flop. And it's like an instant. You can see just the instant change in her face and her eyes and her voice. The -hmm. way she uses her voice too, um, her vocal quality. And it's the scene where she first goes back to her room Mm -hmm. with Henry Fonda. Yeah. And it's doing the shoe thing. He puts her shoes on and her voice just gradually gets a little bit lower and more sultry. What were you doing up the Amazon? Looking for snakes. I'm an ophiologist. I thought you were in the beer business. Beer? Ale. What's the difference? Between beer and ale? My father burst a blood vessel here. Did you say that? There's a big difference. Ale's sort of fermented on the top or something, and beer's fermented on the bottom, or maybe it's the other way around. There's no similarity at all. You see, the trouble with being descended from a brewer, no matter how long ago he brewed it, or whatever you call it, you're supposed to know all about something you don't give a hoot about. It's funny to be kneeling here at your feet talking about beer. You see, I don't like beer. Bach beer, lager beer, or steam beer. Don't you? I do not, and I don't like pale ale, brown ale, nut brown ale, porter, or stout, which makes me ulp just to think about it. <laughs> Excuse me. But it was enough so everybody to call me Hopsy ever since I was six years old. Hopsy Pike. Hello, Hopsy. Make it Charlie, will you? <laughs> All right, but there's something kind of cute about Hopsy. And when you got older, I could call you Popsy. Hopsy Popsy. That's all I need. Here's a business I wouldn't mind being in. I never realized before how lovely it could be. Oh, thank you. We better get back now. Yes, I guess so. You see, where I've been, I mean up the Amazon, you kind of forget how... I mean, when you haven't seen a girl in a long time... I mean, uh, something about that perfume. That Don't you like my perfume? Like it. I'm cockeyed on it. I have to. You ought to be kept in the cage. 
It's one of my favorite scenes, but I think that scene's so interesting. Her character is like a performer through and through. And that scene is where she, it's like a masterclass of like seduction. Like she knows exactly how to play this guy and she knows his weakness. And it's like every step is done with almost surgical precision. Right. And I think it's because... 1941 was a big year for her. I, that um, She had four movies come out. And funnily enough, two were with Gary Cooper and two were with Henry Fonda. It, yeah. It's just funny the way that that worked out. Yeah. But I do think of the four released that I think the Lady Eve is the best of that year for her. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, she it's a masterclass in seduction and it's a con within a con. And I, it's perfect. It's just perfect. It is. And like he falls for it so easily. Like she knows he's not going to be able to resist me. He's just a himbo. Yeah, he is. Right? <laughs> And honestly, if I was in his position, like I would have done the same. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's hard to resist Barbara Stanwyck, that's for sure. Right, and he ignored every other woman on that ship, and then yeah. he literally—she tripped him, but he literally fell at her feet. Yeah, and you know, it's just—it's magical. It is that scene, the scene uh, where she's looking in her compact, and she's sort of like narrating. Uh, all the other women's actions as throw themselves at her. It's like she's playing this same game as them, but she's hedging her bets that he won't fall for any of them. And she's right. Not good enough. What'd you say? I said they're not good enough for him. Every Jane in the room is giving him the thermometer and he feels they're just a waste of time. He's returning to his book. He's deeply immersed in it. He sees no one except... Watch his head turn when that kid goes by. Won't do you any good, dear. He's a bookworm, but swing him anyway. Oh, now how about this one? How would you like that hanging on your Christmas tree? Oh, you wouldn't? Well, what is your weakness, brother? Holy smoke, the drop kerchief. That hasn't been used since Lily Langtree. You'll have to pick it up yourself, madam. It's a shame if he doesn't care for the flesh, he'll never see it. Look at that girl over to his left. Look over to your left bookworm. There's a girl pining for you. A little further. Just a little further. There. Wasn't that worth looking for? See those nice store teeth all beaming at you. Well, she recognizes you. She's up, she's down. She can't make up her mind, she's up again. She recognizes you. She's coming over to speak to you. The suspense is killing me. Why, for heaven's sake, aren't you fuzzy old hammer I went to manual training school with in Louisville? Oh, you're not? Well, you certainly look exactly like him. It's certainly a remarkable resemblance. But if you're not going to ask me to sit down, I suppose you're not going to ask me to sit down. I'm very sorry. I certainly hope I haven't caused you any embarrassment, you so-and-so. I wonder if my tie's on straight. I certainly upset them, don't I? Now, who else is after me? Ah, the lady champion wrestler. Wouldn't she make a housefull? Well, you don't like her either. Well, what are you going to do about it? Oh, you just can't stand it anymore. You're leaving. These women don't give you a moment's peace, do they? Well, go ahead. Go sulk in your cabin. Go soak your head and see if I care. Very sorry, sir. Is that right? Why don't you look where you're going? Why don't I look? What you did to my shoe, you're not for heel off. Oh, I did? Well, I'm certainly sorry. You didn't? You can just take me right down to my cabin for another pair of slippers. Oh, well, certainly. I guess it's the least I can do. By the way, my name's Pike. Oh, everybody knows that. Nobody's talking about anything else. This is my father, Colonel Harrington. My name is Jean. It's really Eugenia. Come on. 
that is probably one of the funniest scenes in any movie to me. Just the way she's watching him and narrating the whole thing and giving him fake names and giving them fake names. And <laughs> I love that scene so much. And I think that is a really smart choice mm-hmm. director wise to have that be in there because I think it lends to how the movie's very fast paced, but it wouldn't work if it wasn't, if that makes any yeah. sense. And that kind of speed through of the, the, the narration I think sets the tone for the whole movie. Absolutely. It's you establish not only the characters' personalities, but also their dynamics going forward. So it sort of sets you up for everything that happens later. Right. And I was rewatching it again last night in preparation for today. And I, every time I watch it, I notice something different. And it's just, it's perfect the way that that's set up. Yeah, I'm not a sports person by any means, but it's like she's almost like a sports broadcaster uh, giving us a play-by-play and she changes the intonation and speed and the way she talks and it's this this cool confidence about her that she knows that she's going to get what she wants and she's sort of like playing that long game. Yep, she walks him right into, quite literally right into her trap. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I love it so much. Another thing about Jean, and I think this is the case with a lot of Sandwick's performances, is that she's almost always the smartest and like most cunning person in the room. And I think in that moment, I mean, she's watching him read this book, Are Snakes Necessary? So she realizes subtlety is not going to work with someone like him. You need to literally trip him to get his attention. And the whole thing with the snake, because when you first meet Jean, you're like, oh, she she can't be touched. She's untouchable. Like no one's going to... But then the snake, she's terrified yeah. of the snake. And that's the one crack in her armor, I think, that we see. Would you care to come in and see Emma? That's a new one, isn't it? <laughs> Shh, I don't want to wake her up. Wake who up? Emma. Emma? Who's Emma? I thought that was just a gag. Well, technically, she's a Colobrina marsdizia, which seems to be a rare type of Brazilian glass snake, which I'm... A thinking. snake? She seems to have got out again. She's out? Well, don't worry. She's around here someplace. Oh! Oh, let me out of here! Don't be frightened. She's just as playful as a kitten. You mustn't realize... Ah! Don't do that! How's that... Ah! I'm terribly sorry. I wouldn't have frightened you for anything Why didn't in the you world. tell me you had a slimy... I thought you understood Emma was oh, a snake. I understand anything of the kind. Why should I suspect an apparently civilized Please. man? Oh, look under the bed. How did she possibly get down here? Please. Oh, Please. all right. Oh! It's just a stocking. Well, if you see any more, just leave them there. I'll look in the bed. In the bed? How could she possibly... Oh, go on now. You know how fast we came down, so you can imagine. Oh! It's nothing, but it might have given you a shock. There's nothing like a cold hot water bottle. Oh. It's just hysterical because obviously the snake isn't can be used as an innuendo, which <laughs> you know is toying with the the haze code and all that stuff. Yeah. But when she sees this tiny little snake, like she freaks out, and I think that's the one crack in her armor that we see. Like, and we remember, oh, she is human. She's not just mm-hmm. this otherworldly con artist she's a human being who happens to be doing some questionable things yeah but that's that one point where you're like oh like she is scared of something absolutely and I think you see that also 
you see a sort of softer side to her when she makes him win the game later on. And she feels bad almost that they're mm-hmm. taking advantage of him. And so there is this sympathetic element to her character that really makes it a lot more cohesive and like full of depth. And the thing with the card game where she's like, don't play anymore. Like, promise me you won't play any more hands. And then Harrington just keeps going. Yes. And ends up getting the check for the $32,000 and pretends to crumble it up. But then the reveal is that he kept the check. And that, I mean, later on, that plays a big part in why she decides to get back at Mm -hmm. him after the whole reveal of, oh, she's actually this con artist. He's not going to marry her now. Mm -hmm. That leads to the second con, which I think is really well executed also. I mean, the movie itself is just well executed, but I like the second half the first half almost if that makes sense the whole idea of the lady eve being this mysterious british socialite welcome my dear good evening sir alfred hello hello how are you glenny glad to see you you old rascal horace my lad my niece lady sidwich how do you do well for heaven's sakes this is a surprise say what do i call you well horace i think you've known please just call me eve just plain Eve. Isn't that wonderful? You're just the kind of a girl I've been looking for all my life. We'll get this over with quick and you and I'll have a little drink. Really? Just the word for it. Come on. <laughs> I hope Horace won't frighten her to death. How long has she been in America? Three days. Three days? And to meet Horace right away? Oh, I How did she come over? I didn't know the boats were running. A battleship. Battleship? Well, actually a cruiser. She must be very, very... Oh, very. Well. <laughs> the elements of her personality still shine through, and I think it's remarkable that Charles doesn't recognize her as Lady Eve. Right, and I think that's a good question. Like, does he really not recognize her, or does he recognize her and just not want to have his heart broken again? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think, I mean, no one can be that dumb, right? Like, <laughs> right. Like, it, like you're looking, it's literally the same person. Yeah. His whole thing is when his, when Muggsy brings it up and is like, that's the same girl. He's like, they don't talk the same. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Come on. Wake up. But yeah, I know. That also adds to his, like his naive nature and his whole thing with, I've been up the Amazon for a year. I don't know how women work. (laughs) And yet he's, he can be smooth when he wants to be. So it's like, he's putting on an act too, right? Oh yeah. And you know, I haven't looked too far into this, but I remember a story that saying that Henry Fonda really was like in love with Barbara Stanwyck. So that oh, attributed really? to a lot. Yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know how much truth there is to that. It could just be one of those old Hollywood rumors, but I remember reading that somewhere and it would make sense mm-hmm. for this, you know, for the movie. I mean, is that really Henry Fonda acting or is it really Henry Fonda? Which again, can't say I'd blame him. I mean, yeah. Barbara Stanwyck was the woman at the time. Yeah. So that was her, that was a good period from 1939 to like 1941. That was just, just the amount of incredible performances she was able to give us in that short period. It's right. And I mean, 1941 alone, like I said, like four movies alone in 1941 and two of them are still critically acclaimed. 
like to this day, like they're on the AFI lists and, you know, they've been lauded in the American film canon. And I just think that's remarkable. It is. I mean, her filmography is stacked. And I think what's interesting about Stanwyck is like she made two of the best classical era screwball comedies. And yet similar to Irene Dunn, she was never really that confident in her skills as a comedian. And she's, I read that she called comedy like a vacation from working. And it's so funny that both of these actresses at the top of their craft, and yet they have this sort of detached attitude about their genre. I don't know if it's humility or what, but how would you defi- how would you define Stanwyck's comedy style? I think she's a natural, honestly. Mm-hmm. Given how many of her movies I've seen now, and I do love her dramas. I mean, Stella Dallas is one of the most remarkable movies I think of I all time. It's one of my very favorites of hers. But there's something very special about her comedy, and even if she wasn't confident in mm-hmm. it, it doesn't show. And I've often wondered if it's actually just her own personality shining through in the comedy because she was a very tough broad. I mean, she was very specific about things that she liked, things that she didn't. And she was also very smart, very well read. And I think that attributes a lot to the way that her comedy comes out on screen also because she was a a smart talker. She was a fast Mm -hmm. talker. I think her comedy is brilliant, honestly. And maybe that's just my own personal sense of humor, but... I love her more comedic roles and especially in Ball of Fire. I mean, which is, I think Ball of Fire is a little more stagnant than the Lady Eve, but her role in it specifically, I think is more fun. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Absolutely. I think there's definitely a lightness to her comedy and she is a screwball woman, but she's different than, let's say, like a Carol Lombard or a Rosalind Russell. Um, she's not like that zany, over-the-top, lose-all-your-inhibitions screwball right. woman. And I think because she's too smart for that, has such a confidence about her. And for me, it's like she's always above all of her films in the sense that you could tell that she's deeply amused by her characters. And like there's this twinkle in her eye that you see when she's um, in these roles. It's it's, I think that definitely comes across and adds to the, like the lightness of her comic style. Right. And I think it's interesting that you bring up Carol because they were both in a number of screwball comedies and I believe they were friends even. Yes, they were. I think the two of them have such distinct comedic styles, but just distinct acting styles, but they were up for, I mean, Carol was up for the role in Ball of Fire at one yes. point. And I think that's so interesting to think about because it would have been a completely different movie with Carol. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Sam Goldwyn had offered it to her first and then she had the production schedule and that overlapped with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And then I think she, Carol suggested Lucille Ball. And then they also considered, if I'm not mistaken, Ginger Rogers. Yeah, and I think all three of those actresses would have worked. It would have been a very different movie, as you said, but... I think Stanwyck definitely brings this edgy quality to that role that the other actresses would have lacked. Right. And I think it's a more sensual mm-hmm. edge. I mean, yeah. both of the both late the Lady Eve and Ball of Fire are there's a lot of deeply suggestive yeah. and scenes and Looking back and considering the Hayes Code, it's kind of miraculous that both were able to get past that because there's a lot of innuendo and it's not blatant, it's not outright, it's just 
towing the line a little bit. Yeah. But I think I think Barbara Stanwyck's own sex appeal kind of helped with both of those because she's been objectified enough, but her sex appeal, I think, is what helped her become a star because mm-hmm. she it's just a natural quality that she has about her mm-hmm. and you just you're like you're just drawn to her it's this chem it's this charisma it's this mm-hmm. chemistry with her co-stars it's this dynamic just force yeah and I'm not saying other actresses don't have that but I think she had it in spades definitely and she was always in control of that and has this confidence about her and I mean not to go too off topic but I think uh, Babyface is a good example of that where this woman she you know grew up in this abusive really awful home and she was able to fight her way out of that situation and she wields her sexuality to get what she wants which you could you know argue the feminist politics of that but I think it's a ultimately a performance that shows her resilience and sort of tenacity and I think that's a lot of it is down to Stanwyck and the way she's able to harness her own sex appeal. Right and that's also seen very prominently in Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray because she just manipulates the hell out of this guy. Yeah. And she knows that he wants her. Yeah. And she knows that he's not going to get her. But she mm-hmm. uses that to her advantage to get what she wants. Exactly. And obviously it doesn't work out in the end. But, you know, that's another example of her just harnessing her own power. Mm-hmm. And the Stanwick off screen and the Stanwick on screen, I really don't think there's that big of a distinction. Can you talk a little bit about her off screen life and how that sort of maybe has contributed to our understanding of her as a performer? Yeah, so she had a very tragic upbringing of sorts. I mean, she was, for all intents and purposes, an orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother died when she was four and her father left soon after that. And she was left with her older brother and they were just passed from house to house until one of her older sisters was able to take them in. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it was Millie. Um, but Millie, I believe, was an actress. and. It's been a while since I've read the biography that Victoria Wilson wrote um, that covers a lot of her early life. So I'm just trying to remember it the best that I can. But um, her early life being passed around and not really having a home to call her own. And Mm -hmm. that led to her kind of very, I want to say tenacious and very determined attitude because she was very much of the idea like I brought myself up from nothing Mm-hmm. So other people should be able to do that. And I think that contributed not to get political, but that contributed a lot to her politics and her ideologies. I mean, she was besties with Ronald Reagan. That's a discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, her early life was not easy. And yeah. I think that really it contributed a lot to just how she was in her later life. I mean, she had an abortion when she was a teenager. She got married very young to somebody, I, Frank Faye, Frank I believe. Faye, yeah, he's yeah. a, that's a, that's a, not a great situation. That is not a good situation at all. And, you know, I think that established a lot of things for her. I quite obviously cannot speak for her, mm-hmm. I, but just reading about it, nobody deserves to go through what she went through. And I think no. that, 
really was the basis for her attitude and her personality and mm. possibly contributed a lot to the projects that she chose but just her the idea of being an orphan and not having a family and just bringing herself up from nothing that is something that stayed with her as she kept working and I think that's important to consider it's a testament to her resilience and her ambition and everything I've read about her she was always the most professional person on set like she knew her lines she knew everyone else's lines she gave it her all and I think she was very grateful for the opportunities that she had but she worked hard for them and it's I think you see that that like resilience and that drive in her performances there she plays very they're vulnerable women but they're also they have this strength in them yeah I was gonna say they're vulnerable but they're sturdy yeah and you know um you know like you said she was the most professional person on the set like but she was also probably one of the kindest I want mm-hmm. to say because everything that I've also read like all her co-stars say that she would just be absolutely gracious with her time she would give them advice she would sit down with them you know tell them stories and a lot of people in her position might not have done that yeah so I think again that's you know she, she pulled herself up but she wanted to help other people too yeah, she didn't let that fame go to her head. She always sort of remembered where she right. came from and like the hardships that she endured. And I mean, she ended up living on a ranch and, mm-hmm. you know, not a giant mansion like she absolutely could have done, but yeah. she wanted to be on a ranch with her horses. And I love that. <laughs> I love it too. And it's funny, I'm subscribed to the newsletter from what is now her home out mm-hmm. in uh, California. Um, and I always want to go and visit it because sometimes they do like Barbara Stanwyck, like movie nights and Q and A's. And I've always wanted to go visit it, but you know, I'm in New York. Yeah. That's California. It's quite a, it's quite a trip, but Mm -hmm. I think it's so cool that that land is still standing and is still being utilized today. I think she'd be very happy about that. So switching back to the films, I think going, going back to you mentioned how in 1941 alone, she worked with Henry Fonda and Gary Cooper twice. And I think in both of the films that we're talking about on this podcast, I think it's essential that those characters, Charles Pike and Bertram Potts, that they're played by actors like a Henry Fonda and a Gary Cooper. And like, right. how do you think that both of them balance out Stanwyck's sensuality and her confidence? So starting with The Lady Eve, because that one was released first of the two that we're discussing I do want to point out that Henry Fonda was not the original casting choice Mm -hmm. um, which I think is very interesting because it was our man Fred McMurray who was initially supposed to be playing Charles Pike and I'm not entirely familiar with the original actress um Madeline Carroll I know her from the 39 steps but she worked with Hitchcock a lot but Mm -hmm. just looking at those two compared to Stanwyck and Fonda Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Stanwyck and McMurray, that's a dream pairing, but yeah. there's something about Henry Fonda that just makes this work so well. Yeah. And I do think that he brings a certain, a certain, it's almost a childlike quality to yeah. the character of Charles Pike. And it's not a childlike innocence, but it's just 
well, it could be innocence, but it's just this naive little, he, that she calls him a bookworm constantly. Like mm -hmm. he is, he's a bookworm. And I don't think that Fred McMurray could have played that realistically, not saying that he wasn't. I don't know him personally, unfortunately, <laughs> but um, there's just something about Henry Fonda. It's almost like an ingenue. Yeah. And I think playing off of a seasoned professional like Stanwyck, I think that is what makes the two of them so special on screen. And then with Gary Cooper in Ball of Fire, I mean, both of them were seasoned professionals and yeah. Gary Cooper actually recommended Stanwyck for the role. Okay. Wow, I didn't know that. We discussed Ginger Rogers at Carol Lombard, but yeah. I believe Gary Cooper was still the only male choice for the role, but he recommended okay. Barbara Stanwyck because they had worked together on Meet John Doe, which came yeah. out in 1941 also. And I just think that's, first, that's incredibly nice that a co-star would recommend you for another movie with them. Very, he obviously liked working with her. And Gary Cooper... I can't quite pinpoint what it is about him that stands out to me, but it's not the naive nature that Henry Fonda brought to the Lady Eve, but there's just this still bookwormishness. Still, he's super intelligent. All, yeah. he, the line in the movie says all he thought he would ever love were his books until <laughs> he meets Sugar Puss. And, <laughs> you know, which is, probably my favorite character name it's ever it's, that movie it, not to go on a tangent but the movie has some of the best character names ever like if um duke pastrami <laughs> you know is one of my right. favorite gangster names it's and so you know sugar post o'shea like if bond movies were made in the 40s like she'd be a bond girl yes and even just bertram potts like that <laughs> it just flows and I can't pinpoint what it is about Gary Cooper that makes him so perfect for that part, but he just is. I really can't picture anybody else playing him and going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Barbara Stanwyck the way that he does. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the film's plays with Gary Cooper's persona in the sense that like, it gives him the space to, I guess, play against type. Because he's obviously, as you said, he's very different than Henry Fonda. And then he's much more of a conventionally attractive sex symbol in that way. But he was, he was allowed to be this charming comedian and I think what's funny, he doesn't fit in physically in his age, in his acting style with the other professors. And so like that, it's right. very jarring and disjointed, but in like a perfect, it's a deliberate and it's done and it's such a funny contrast. It is, but that's what makes it so enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I mean, Charles Pike is very clear that he's a bumbling idiot. Potts is not necessarily a bumbling idiot, but he is just very clumsy with his he's clumsy with his emotions if that makes sense like he yes. doesn't quite know how to articulate it yeah um, because falling in love with a person is very much not the same as yeah you know falling in love with your books and the other professors they add the comedic relief yeah definitely and I just love watching the contrast of like the older players and the younger players mm -hmm. it, it's just it's very enjoyable yeah I think what's funny about his character is like he's very by the book and everything and like there's this rigid quality and like the way he tries to express his feelings. There's one line, it's one of my favorites, and he says, And Amici is the telephone on account of he invented it. Oh no, you Like, didn't. you know, in the movies. Oh, I see what you mean. Very interesting. Make no mistake, I shall regret the absence of your keen mind. Unfortunately, it is inseparable from an extremely disturbing body. 
It's like such a clinical way to talk about romance and like your feelings for this woman. Right. And he is, he's very upfront and straightforward because the whole engagement scene, he literally just brings her an engagement ring on her (laughs) breakfast tray. And then her actual boyfriend calls and he has to pretend to be her father. And there's that whole scene where he's asking her father's permission to marry her on the phone. Well, um, what other news is there, Daddy? Everything fine at home? Is uh, Mom all right? Uh, for Easter? Well, I uh, I don't know, Daddy. Um, just a minute. Um, I won't be long. Just wait in the library. Do you mind if I have a few words with your father? Sure. Um, Daddy, this is the professor I was telling you about. Mr. O'Shea, my name is Bertram Potts. I judge your daughter has already told you of my aspirations in her regard. Hey, are you crazy? Oh, you're quite right, Mr. O'Shea. It's inexcusable for one to introduce oneself to one's future father-in-law over the telephone. But before even considering entrusting your daughter's future happiness to my care, I'm sure you want to know all about me. Well, as character references, you might get in touch with the head of the Rockefeller Foundation and the president of Princeton, my own university. Well, except for occasional trouble with my left sinus, I am in excellent physical condition. Mm, How's your digestion, son? Good. I draw a salary of $3,200 per year. Uh, In the last election, I voted the straight Republican ticket. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I just had a brain flash, McNary. Why don't you say your first name is, son? Bertram. Well, Bertram, I don't know if Sugarpuss told you, but uh, she's our only child. We kind of never figured on having a professor in the family, but that's what she wants, and that's fine with us. I shall do everything I can, Mr. O'Shea, to make her happy. Just one thing more, Bertram. Mom is kind of an invalid. Doesn't do any traveling. But it would just break her heart not to see Sugarpuss married. You understand that? Of course, sir. My mother is dead, but I know it would have... It would have made her happy to be present. So suppose you just bring the kid right down here. We want to see you, and let's have the ceremony in our hometown. Why, of course, Mr. O'Shea. May I call you father, Mr. O'Shea? Thank you, father. It's better than I hoped for. And that whole conversation is just very prim and proper. And he is doing everything that he's supposed to do. And he has no idea that he's being played the entire time. And it's like that rigid nature and that rigid behavior is his downfall. And I think that's one of the only bad things you can say about his character is that his rigidness doesn't allow him to fully experience the range of emotions. Definitely. Yeah, the engagement scene, he puts it, for those of you who haven't watched the film, he puts his uh, this engagement ring that he bought for her under like this cloche of, it's supposed to be like toast or something. I brought your breakfast. Good, I'll have it right here in the snooze stand. Thank you. Uh, how do you take it? Oh, just jab, no cow. Just what? Black. Oh, sugar? Straight. Toast? No, thanks. You sure you don't want some toast? Uh-uh. 
Here's some jam to go with it. It's blackberry. Mm -mm. Never use it. Not just one bite? Uh-uh. Sit down, take a load off your feet. Say, I found out what's wrong with unaccountable cause. It's saying the same thing twice, you know, like calling somebody a rich millionaire. You call it a, a pleo, no, no, a, a play... Pleonasm? Yes, that's how you pronounce it, that's it. Who told you that? Oh, this room's full of books about Graham. I read for a couple of hours. Well, I couldn't sleep either. I walked in the park till the sun came up over the East 60s. It took me all that time to gather my thoughts, to analyze my impulses, and clarify our relationship. Have we got one of those? A very important moment. A new chapter, in fact, for me, it's the first chapter. What has my life been up to now? A preface, an empty foreword. You couldn't talk a little plainer, could you? Not if you won't have a piece of toast. At least, just, at least look under the lid. Oh, you went and bought me a present. I hope it fits. Kirkakoff calculated the circumference of your finger. The jeweler at seven o'clock this morning. It's a lovely ring, Patsy. Really, it is. I hoped you'd like it. It's our, it's our engagement ring. Patsy, do you mean you? Yes, I did. I. <laughs> you mean you really? Well. What am I supposed to say? Just say yes. After you've declared your feelings, it's the only logical step to take. Oh, don't you think you better take another turn around the park, Patsy? She's used to living in this world where everyone's like these smooth operators, and then she comes uh, into this this house where all these men really have no experience with the opposite sex and couches to have normal conversations. I guess right and. That contrast, it, it's really a clash of two different worlds entirely. Mm -hmm. She is a gangster's mall, and these yeah. are very uptight, educated gentlemen. Mm -hmm. And the meeting of minds under the, two, the same roof is exciting, but there's something lurking under the surface the whole time that obviously comes to a head at the end, but yeah. it makes for a very interesting movie it is and i think some of this film is about language in a way in the sense like how we communicate and like the perceptions that we have about each other and of i guess ourselves in a way based on like how we speak to one another i mean the dialogue's just fantastic obviously that's attributed to billy wilder and charles brackett did you have any favorite lines or like bits of slang stick out to you I feel like I should have <laughs> more specific favorites because I am an English major. I have mm -hmm. my master's in English. Language was my thing for so many years. But the one scene that remains my favorite to this day is the scene where she's teaching him about the yum yum kisses. I want you to leave. Oh, all right, I'll go. But if I'm going to go anyway, I guess I might as well spill it. Spill it? Spill what? Why do you suppose I came here in the first place? to help with the research. I did not. I came on account of you. Me? And not on account of you needed some slang. On account of because I wanted to see you again. Miss O'Shea, the construction on account of because outrages every grammatical law. So what? I came on account of because I couldn't stop thinking about you after you left my dressing room. On account of because I thought you were big and cute and pretty. Pretty? Yeah, I mean you. Oh, maybe I'm just crazy, but to me you're a regular yum-yum type. Yum-yum? 
Yeah, don't you know what that means? No, we never got to that. Well, we got to it now, and I'm glad it's out. I don't give a hoop whether the others went for me. You're the one I'm wacky about, just plain wacky. Can you understand that? Please, Miss oh, O'Shea. Oh, nothing. Maybe you can generate or whatever it is for all that suppressed business, but I can't. No, I'm too tall. What, what are you doing? Oh, you'll find out. Those are Professor Gergerkoff's reference books. No, and they're very bad. just too bad. Oh, that's perfect. What are you going to do? Come here. I'm going to show you what yum yum is. Here's yum. Here's the other yum. And here's yum yum. Excuse me. Hey, where are you going? Did you see? He practically stepped on my hand. Three steps of Shot the out of a gun. But where is he going? Why? To get a razor strap, I hope. And I hope he knows where to apply it. He gets so flustered and goes upstairs and has to, like, take a cold shower and just kind of get his mind straight. And she, he comes back downstairs and she's like, what happened? <laughs> and she has to stand on the books, the to, books. Be to reach him, yeah. which is an interesting image in and of itself and not to get too deep here but her standing on the books she's li quite literally placing herself on as his main priority at that point like putting yeah. herself on top of the things that he's been working on for so many years mm -hmm. i just think that's a perfect picture in its own right it is and she's kind of saying to him like wake up there's more to life and the world than just you know yep. your your encyclopedia and you can have love too Yep. And I also, I do love the whole drum boogie scene where he's just yeah. watching her and like starting to write things down and then he just gets absolutely transfixed and is just yeah. watching her on stage and in the crowd. And I think that's very well done too. Um, yes. It's like, a, it's like he goes there for like an anthropological study. It's like, he's this fish out of water. He's never been to a club like that, obviously. And he's right smacked in the face with contemporary culture. Right, and the first time I watched Ball of Fire, um, I remember that scene reminded me very much of a scene from one of my favorite TV shows, um, Cheers. Mm. Um, the character of Lilith comes in in later seasons and she just sits at the bar the whole time, just watching the bar patrons, writing things down because she's a psychiatrist and she's studying them. Yes. So it's something that I think is very interesting to look at, just the idea of these incredibly smart people just studying other people around them because they are not in that world, and the, but they want to understand it. They never will like, unless lose their own inhibition. They have to break down their own walls. And I think that you see that again later on when he invites this assortment of characters to the house and they're having like this round table discussion mm -hmm. and he's asking them, you know, like, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? And they have to explain the nuances of just basic language. And it, you can see that contrast between his world and theirs. And I just think it's a very, very smart movie. And I do know a little bit about Hawks and Wilder, because if I'm remembering from what I read correctly, Billy wanted to direct mm. Ball of Fire. And he instead just watched how Howard Hawks did it and then was like, I'm going to do things differently with my movies. But I think there was a little bit of contention between Hawks and Wilder. Mm. And I don't know if that necessarily 
transferred over to how they both worked with Barbara. Mm. I do remember reading that Billy wanted to direct Ball of Fire instead of Howard. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, that would have been an interesting uh, movie. I mean, Howard Hawk, his screwball comedies, at least he like a 20th century, his girl Friday, and then, you know, Ball of Fire, they really do play with language so well. And of course, Billy Wilder does too, but in a very different way. So it would have been interesting to, you know, in among the many what ifs in yeah. you know, classical Hollywood, that would have been interesting to think about uh, a Billy Wilder directed version of this film. Right. And I'm not saying it wouldn't have been smart the way that it already is. It would have mm. been smart in a different way. Yeah which I think is very interesting to think about. Since I have you here, we've already kind of talked about him a little bit, but I mean, for those of you who are listening and you don't know Kate and I personally, we are basically like co-presidents of the Fred McMurray fan club. And it's I feel a, like- It's yeah. a shared title at this point. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like, not to get too off topic with Stanwyck, but I feel like since I have you here, we have to talk about him. And I mean, he was a frequent Stanwyck co-star. They made four films okay. together. Remember the Night, Double Indemnity, The Moonfire, Moonlighter, excuse me, and There's Always Tomorrow. And yes. why do you think they work so well together? Their chemistry is undeniable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just watch them on screen and you're drawn, you don't know where to look because you oh. are drawn to both of them. And I think that is so fascinating because that type of chemistry most people would think you only have that type of chemistry with somebody that you're romantically involved with, but they mm-hmm. never were. They yeah. were very good friends and co-stars, but there was never any kind of romance between them. Mm-hmm. At least to my knowledge. I, I mean, I can't speak to what may have happened behind the scenes, but all yeah, I, I don't think there was. I think Fred, Fred McMurray, I think he was probably too square to ever have like an affair. Right. Yeah. right. And I just think the chemistry between them I like get giddy just thinking about it. Yeah. And they just play off each other so well. Like thinking about double indemnity, that whole Mm -hmm. scene where they first meet and they're talking about, well, what if I pull you over? You're going 95. And he's like, why don't you like get, are you going to give me a ticket officer? And that whole scene is just one after the other. They're just rapid firing going at each other. And it's Mm -hmm. so magnetic. I don't think two other people could have done what they did. No, it's like smoldering chemistry and like the sexual tension between them in that scene is palpable. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you know, he's hooked from that first time he sees her at the top of the stairs and her little anklet and yep. she's like reeling him in. Yep. And she knows she's doing it too. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. Like we were saying before with the Lady Eve, it's like a very conscious performance of like that feminine seduction. Right. And it's funny to think about Fred McMurray in that way because mm. for much of I mean for much of my childhood I knew of Fred McMurray as like the absent-minded professor and all these other kind of roles that he played as he got older and then as I got older that's when I started watching more of his other roles and I was like the absent-minded professor is a sex symbol yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's so funny to think about him in two different parts of my life like that. Mm-hmm. But it's like with Stanwyck, I mean, she went on to do very different roles as she got older. Yeah. But the pairing of the two of them for so long, it, it's just like 
you knew if you had both of them in a movie that it was going to just be fireworks on screen. And he also worked, he worked with Carol a lot too. Yeah. And that's I what, think- yeah, that's what I was going to say that I, why I find him to be like the ideal male star is because I think, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way at all, but I think he had this malleability that he could compliment whatever actor he worked with. And so he was great at matching the energy of his leading ladies or his co-stars, but definitely with his leading ladies. So that's why I think he worked so well with, you know, Carol. And then Claudette Colbert was another one of his frequent co-stars, but with Barbara Stanwyck, like he's different versions of himself with all of them. And I think you're absolutely right. That malleability, I think, is what made him so successful because not only could he adapt himself to his co-stars, but he could bring more out of his co-stars that way because they were comfortable working with him because you knew that he was going to be the perfect partner. And it's pure magic every time he's on screen with Barbara. And I like that you brought up the Moonlighters because that's one of my, not as talked about Mm -hmm. favorites, but it's, I love her in, in Westerns and yes. I just think The Moonlighters is so, I haven't watched it in a while, but it is one of my favorites in terms of her Westerns, even though The Furies takes the top spot there, but mm. that's a different discussion that we <laughs> that we should have if you ever do a podcast about Westerns. Westerns? Yeah, 100%. But uh, the it's two of them- Yeah, I mean, like of the four movies that they made together, it's probably like the least known, but it's still like, it holds up so well and it's- Right. It's, it's remarkable that they made four like heavy hitting films in different genres and they mastered all of them. And Remember the Night is just a gorgeous, Ugh. gorgeous movie. Yeah. And, you know, There's Always Tomorrow breaks my heart. I know. It's crushing in a way, but it's absolutely beautifully done. It's, it's a remarkable film. Yeah. And I mean, Remember the Night is probably my favorite Christmas movie. I watch it at least like two or three times every holiday season. It is a very important part of the Barbara Stanwyck Christmas canon. Exactly. Yeah. Of their four films, I mean, I I assume then The Moonlighters is your favorite or do you have a favorite or is it hard, too hard to choose? It is hard to choose, but if I had to pick a top two, like tied for favorite, it would probably be there's always tomorrow and double indemnity just because their chemistry in both, both are equally, I guess, I don't want to say tragic, but sad in their own way, but I love them both very much. Which Stanwyck film, either of the ones we talked today, or it doesn't have to be, do you think sort of best defines her capabilities as an actress and which film to you sort of like is essential Barbara Stanwyck? Oh, Wow. So hard question, I know. It is, it's a great question. And actually on my letterbox, I have a list of like Stanwyck films ranked like in order of my favorites. Mm. To me, the essential film that I think everybody should watch if you are not familiar with Barbara Stanwyck, but you want to dive more into her filmography, I think a predictable answer would be double indemnity. So Mm. I'm not going to say that. Mm. For me, it's Stella Dallas. Oh, yeah. And it showcases her range as a performer. And it's just a very beautiful story overall. It's Mm -hmm. not a happy ending 
So fair warning if you're going into it, but it's an important story, I think. And I love it very, very much. I, it's one of my favorites for sure. So I would recommend that to anybody who wants to learn more about her filmography and maybe start diving into a little bit more. Stella Dallas, 100% is the way to go. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for joining me. I loved chatting with you. Oh my God. I'm so excited that you asked me to begin with. And, you know, I hope we did her justice. Definitely. I, I, I think, I think we definitely did do her justice. So thank you. That concludes this episode of the Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye bye! <laughs>